Hey everybody, how you doing? And welcome to episode number 173 of the John Riley Project. Hey, this is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, we're live streaming like we always do. Now, we're doing this Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 p.m., live streaming it on our Facebook page, John Riley Project, but also live streaming it on our John Riley Project YouTube page. And since we've been doing the live stream, we've been having lots of fun and having some of our listeners and viewers kind of join in. You can comment on the episodes, type your comments and questions, and we'll be sure to read them on the air and we can have a little bit of fun with it. But yeah, today we're going to talk about Republicans, Democrats, and Eddie Van Halen. So hoping to have a little bit of fun here and you'll talk a little politics, a little music, but um you know, this this episode actually um, is, is from was ignited really from one of my viewers, Bruce McCoy. And he, and he came to me and he said, hey, got this idea for a future topic. You know, what would America look like uh, under one party rule if it was all Republican or all Democrat? And he had a few other questions. And I was thinking, that's a pretty good idea. And I had had this idea for another podcast um, talking about the parties, the two parties and how they're different, but how they're so similar in other ways. And I thought this would be just a really good opportunity to blend them together. So we're going to really do a deep dive on discussing the Republicans and the Democrats and their perceived differences and actual differences. And hopefully we could open up some eyes. Um, but let's start off really talking about the death of Eddie Van Halen. And he passed away yesterday from throat cancer and, you know, reverberations all throughout the music world, but also amongst people like myself in our mid 50s or so. I mean, we grew up with Eddie Van Halen. I mean, Van Halen in its heyday was when I was in high school. So, you know, I've heard the story where the music that's most important to you is typically the music when you're a senior in high school. And that definitely applies to me. In fact, I saw Van Halen in concert for the first time in September of 1982 at the San Francisco Cow Palace right before I went away to college because um, I went to UC San Diego and they start late in September. So I was able to actually, I think I went to that concert the day or two days before we ended up leaving to go move into the dorm. So what a great memory that was. I mean, that was just so much fun. And, you know, back in, well, I guess their first album, Van Halen, came out in like 1978. And back then I was, I remember I was, what, 13 years old. I'd be hanging out with my stepbrother and we'd be playing eight tracks of Fog Hat, right? Fog Hat Live or Aerosmith Toys in the Attic. And you'd hear the big clunk like right in the middle of Slow Ride or something. Uh, but uh, it was a, it was an interesting era, you know, that late seventies and, and, you know, some of the corporate rock was real big. The disco thing, I guess was still kind of going, uh, around 78, but then Van Halen hit. And I remember I was in one of my high school classes and one of the, the guys next to me was doodling on his peachy folder. Remember those and was writing out like the, the Van Halen logo. And I'm like, who's Van Halen? I didn't know about them. And then as I learned about him, I mean, it became a big part of the soundtrack of high school. And, you know, I, I raced BMX when I was in high school. That was a giant part of my life. And I remember I have a, I had an old 1960 Ford panel truck and we bet get a bunch of the boys. We pile into the back of that thing and we drive like down to San Jose because I lived in Burlingame. We go down to San Jose 
Bay or down to Aptos down by Santa Cruz. Sometimes we would drive up to Sacramento or Modesto or Manteca for all these BMX races. But the whole time, man, we were just cranking Van Halen in my van the whole way. It was just, like I said, the soundtrack of our high school years. So when Eddie Van Halen passed away, you're just like, wow, you know, my wife made a comment that it's weird. It's like there are people that are closer to your age that are passing away. You're starting to feel a little bit of your mortality. But I know he had been suffering for about three years and I know he had battles with throat cancer previously. I mean, every time you saw him playing guitar, he was always smoking or he had, you know, a cigarette lit, you know, up in the neck of the guitar up by the tuners. So um, what what a terrible loss. Um, Eddie Van Halen, just a tremendous musician, uh, just the leader of an incredible band, such an influential band. Um, I saw Van Halen four times in concert. And like I said, the first time was in September of 1982 at the San Francisco Cow Palace. And David Lee Roth was the lead man. And I remember it was, yeah, it was September of 82. So there was an election in November of 82 And some guy had these campaign signs for this person. His name was David Lee. He was probably like an Asian person that was running for some kind of office. And he had his campaign signs and he was waving them around. I don't know if it was actually David Lee or people just ripped off the guy's signs. But I remember seeing those. And this was back in the day when you didn't have assigned seating. So we would go into the San Francisco Cow Palace and it was general admission and we would just rush the floor and you'd be in the mob scene in that mosh pit, you know, right in front of the stage. And man, the energy was unbelievable. And I remember a few times you feel yourself, your feet would come up off the ground and you would start to move, you know, in an uncontrollable way, but that's what made it so fun. Um, and yeah, those are just great times. So man, I remember I saw Van Halen there at the Cow Palace in 82. And then I came down here to UCSD. And by this time, you know, Van Halen, well, David Lee Roth was kicked out of the band. And and then they hired Sammy Hagar, who I also love, not just from his Montrose days. I used to listen to a lot of Montrose because he that's like a Bay Area band. Uh, but then he became a solo artist and um they had a show at the San Diego sports arena and this was like in 85, I think. And myself and my friend Todd, we went down to the sports arena to wait in line to get tickets. And we got there like two or three hours ahead of ahead of time, got in line. We were near the front of the line when the tickets were going to go on sale. And we probably only waited in line 20 minutes. And by the time we went to buy the tickets, the best seat we could buy was in the back of the sports arena. And thinking, what in the hell happened? So it must have on all those ticket scalpers, but got to see the show with Sammy Hagar. And that was great because I loved Hagar. I love Van Halen. And, you know, a lot of people say the whole Van Hagar era of Van Halen isn't real Van Halen. I think it's still really, really good. It's just different, you know, with Sammy and a lot more synthesizers, probably a little bit more pop than harder rock, but still great stuff. And then I remember seeing Van Halen with Sammy Hagar again up in the L.A. Forum because after I got out of college, I lived up in L.A. for a couple of years and saw them there. And then. Oh God, it was about 10 or 12 years ago. Um, my wife got tickets to see Van Halen with David Lee Roth at the MGM in Las Vegas. And man, we went to that show and oh my God, was that something. It was 
you know, the band was spectacular. The band, you know, they, they didn't have Michael Anthony on bass. It was, it was Wolfgang, Eddie's son, but Alex was drums and, and Eddie was on guitar and there was David Lee Roth. Musically, they were fantastic. Um, the backup vocals were spot on as they always had been, but David Lee Roth was a freaking train wreck. The guy just couldn't sing, couldn't remember the words, but the, the, and when he did sing, he was off and off key. But the, everyone still had such a great time. And when he would forget the words, the, the whole MGM auditorium would sing along with him. And, and we left that just kind of half like laughing and joking about David Lee Roth, but then also how much we had so much fun. And it just brought back so many great memories. And so uh, just I just have so <laughs> I mean, Van Halen to me is like one of my all time favorites. You know, it's funny as I was trying to figure out when I had saw them at the Cow Palace and I was looking online and I found out, yeah, it was in September of 82. And oh, yeah, that was right before I went away to college. But they had someone at a bootleg of that concert. And I played a little bit of Jamie's crying. And of course, the backup vocals were spot on. But Roth was just off key and everything else, even back then. But he was just such a fantastic front man and so fun and just so in your face, kicking ass with a big smile. So I, I always loved David Lee Roth, but I totally get why Eddie and Alex probably hated him and wanted to get rid of him because he could be a pain in the ass, but he was so fantastic as a frontman. So um, just really mourning the loss of, um, of Eddie, Eddie Van Halen. And even like in my late, you know, later after I got out of college, I had fun playing music as in cover bands, like garage bands. And I'd always want to play a Van Halen song, but the guitar players would never do it. I mean, partly because they figured they could never measure up to Eddie Van Halen, which I, I get, but they always were concerned. They can never get the tone, that sound quality that Eddie Van Halen had. I mean, never mind his, you know, musicianship and his precision and the, the way he could play, which no one could ever match, but just even the tonality of what he was able to get out of his guitar, his effects, his amplifier, it's just unbelievable. So, um, oh, and then, and then remember when Eddie Van Halen married Valerie Bertinelli. And that, for me, that was like a Royal wedding. I remember 19, what was it? 76, 77, when one day at a time was on. And, you know, here I am like 11, 12 years old. And I mean, Valerie Bertinelli was probably my first TV crush. <laughs> you know, I mean, she was just this perfect, you know, young girl. And, and it's just when you're starting to get interested in girls. And, and then she ended up marrying Van, Eddie Van Halen. I was like, my head exploded. Um, it was so fantastic. Like it was like, you know, Prince Charles and Lady Di marrying, at least in my world. But I just had so many great times with Van Halen and um, just, yeah, especially high school, especially going out to BMX races on weekends and just cranking the hell out of the stereo on my van. So much fun. Uh, so really going to miss Eddie Van Halen. Um and this is a, a really weird musical tangent, but um, I, it was last night I was in bed and I woke up a few times and I was dreaming and it was kind of crazy. And, and, you know, you get an earworm like in your head, like a song playing in your head. And this wasn't a Van Halen song, not even close, but it was the song Delta Dawn. I don't know if you ever heard that one. You know, Delta Dawn, what's that flower you have on? And I was just kept repeating it over and over in my head. And when I woke up in, in the morning, I was on autoplay and I'm like, God, 
that's like some early 70s song. Why in the hell am I thinking about that? And I looked up the, the song and I was thinking, was it Tony Orlando and Dawn that did that? And I looked up and it was Helen Reddy. And I went, oh yeah, Helen Reddy. And I go, yeah, she just died. You know, she just died like in late September. And I was thinking, oh yeah. And I remember I was like reading about Helen Reddy and I remember reading about Delta Dawn and I had put those two things together just last week and I had forgotten about it. But the weird thing is, is it's interesting how you can get a earworm or a memory, actually a memory of something. And then it turns into an earworm like four or five days later. And that's what I experienced, which was something. Um, But I don't know. Eddie Van Halen and Helen Reddy. I mean, Jesus, I'm all over the place. Um, but uh, yeah, before we jump into the whole Republican Democrat thing, just the final thing, the Padres game two is tonight. So hopefully um, Zach Davies is going to pitch well for the Padres, going to be rooting for them. It's also the vice presidential debate, which I'm going to probably have to watch on replay. I'm going to watch the baseball game live, but that'll be a fun one to check out too. Kamala Harris and Mike Pence. Um the two opposite characters, right? Kamala Harris is full of energy and Mike Pence is just flatline. So that'll be interesting to watch. So, okay. All right. So let's, um, let's get into the the topic here. And Bruce McCoy, one of our, um, you know, podcast friends, followers, you know, fans of the podcast. He's a good man. He listens to our, our podcasts and comments in the comments section. And again, you're welcome to share your comments in the live stream. And Bruce McCoy said, future topic, what would the United States economic system look like with one party, Republican or Democrat? Would it be a democracy? What is the aisle di- system? And which is closer, China's or Western democracy? And what are the nuances of capitalism tempered with socialism? And I thought, yeah, Bruce, that's a good idea, actually. There's a lot we can cover here. And like I said, I had this idea for talking about the Republicans and the Democrats and, you know, how it's amazing how people portray them to be like good and evil, night and day, black and white. They're polar opposites. But when in fact, they're just so unbelievably similar. And I thought, well, this is like a perfect segue into that. So, you know, let me just answer Bruce's questions up front. You know, um, what would the United States economic system look like with one party, whether it's Republican or Democrat? And the answer, in my opinion, there would be very much difference because the economic policies of these two parties are very, very similar. Now, they're going to make it sound like they're night and day difference. But if you break it down, um, you know, they're, they're going to be pushing pro-corporate agendas. They're going to be pushing a regulatory system that rigs markets for corporations. They're going to be talking about a system that bails out corporations. They're going to be talking about a system that is very corporate driven. They're not going to be talking about free markets. They're not going to be talking. Well, they might talk about it. You might hear a little bit of talk about that from the Republicans, but they never implement it. And the, the leftists might talk more about socialism and and community ownership, but they rarely implement that. Um, so I think that if it was only one party rule, it'd probably be pretty similar, but they, they, they get you what this whole Republican Democrat thing is, is that they, they kind of play us, right? They, they get us arguing amongst each other, you know, the, the red and the blue team, the Republicans and the Democrats fighting over these issues when, you know, you, it's like a magician trick, you know, when one hand's doing the trick, always watch the other hand and the other hand 
is rigging the system, manipulating the economy to benefit some groups at the expense of others. But they distract you with these common, what I'll call wedge issues, which are the few areas where there actually are differences. So, you know, we've seen cases where the Republicans have had full control. We've seen cases where the Democrats have had full control. Did Was there any mind-blowing, earth-shattering change? Not really. I mean, you might have moved the needle a little bit to the left or the right just by a few degrees, but nothing significant. Um, so, you know, would the system be democratic, Bruce asked, if there was only one party? Well, we don't really have a democracy now anyways. You know, a democracy is where everyone votes on everything. Um, we have a republic, which means that we elect people and those people that we elect vote on our behalf. Um, so we don't have a democracy. It's funny how leftists will, will say, you know, democracy is being destroyed. You know, we're, we're uh, blowing up democracy. Well, we never really had democracy. And frankly, democracy is all about mob rule. It's where a majority can oppress a minority. It's where two wolves and a sheep can decide what's for dinner by simply voting. Um, a democracy, in my opinion, is very immoral. Um, but in a republic, a particularly a republic, there is a constitution and there's some individual rights that are maintained. A majority cannot override minorities in many cases. And I think that's a good thing. But if we had one party rule, would it be democratic? Well, no, because it's not democratic now. But there would probably still be elections and that sort of thing. Um, what is the ideal system? Well, again, I think that's the, the debate of the ages. Everyone's got an opinion of what they think is the ideal system. Um, you know, you're hearing people want socialized medicine and they want all these, you know, tax the rich, income inequality they want to minimize. And everyone's got to kind of their own thoughts on what an ideal system is. For me, for me, an ideal system would be one where we simply follow through on the core values, the essentially the charter for the United States, which is to secure our inalienable rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, which really means is that we we maintain or protect individual rights. If we did that, then you know, there would be a proper criminal justice system where if people were murdering or assaulting or raping or stealing or committing fraud, those people would be held accountable. But outside of that scope, people would be basically free to live their lives, to start businesses, to work in their community, to voluntarily cooperate with others where we could actually have the right of our own life. And we would actually have the ability to choose how to live and live according to our own values, which is pursuing our happiness. So to me, that's my ideal form of government. It's essentially one where the government is extremely limited in scope, where within that scope, the only thing they do is protect individual rights. So again, like if someone you can't hurt people and you can't take their stuff. So you can't commit fraud. You can't commit murder or rape or assault. And that's the proper role of government, in my opinion. And then otherwise let people be free. But of course, people don't like that because they don't like freedom in general because they don't trust other people and they want to manipulate other people or they want to manipulate the system to benefit themselves at the expense of others. And that's how we get into the mess that we're in now. Um, Bruce goes on to ask, um, you know, which is closer, China's or Western democracy? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting is we don't really have capitalism in America. I, I talked about that in the previous podcast. It's a mixed economy, right? So we have blend of capitalism and socialism and fascism. 
but they're all varying versions of collectivism, um, where it's all sort of group mentality. I'm much more of an individualist. That's why I'm such a big supporter of individual rights. Um, but every nation pretty much is a mixed economy. It's just a question of the ratios. I mean, as America has become has become more of a mixed economy and less and less of a true capitalist system. We're seeing cases where there's all these terrible distortions in our market, where the system is rigged for the rich and the poor are trapped in poverty, et cetera. But you look at China and they've had communism for a very long time, abject poverty, people dying on farms, mass starvation. And then once they began to open up their economy, once they implemented just a little bit of free markets, a little bit of capitalism, China blossomed, China flourished, China created vast amounts of wealth that dramatically increased the quality of life of the average Chinese person and has led to, um, you know, people being um, released and being able to rise out of abject poverty. And we're seeing that in many other nations around the world. So, you know, which system is better? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that China oppresses individual rights and a lot of other portions of the, of their, of their economy, of their society. But, um, you know, what are the nuances of capitalism tempered with socialism? And that's Bruce's final question. And it's interesting because like I said, we don't have capitalism. We don't have socialism. We have this blend. And some people say that capitalism is too aggressive. Socialism takes, you know, sort of softens the edges of it. You know, what we have now is a mixed economy. And in a mixed economy, what you really are any, what you're left with is a bunch of pressure groups. You've got lobbyists and parties and all these other special interests that all fight amongst each other for control over politicians, for control over all that money that comes in the form of tax dollars and all of that power that exists over the economy to manipulate and to distort the system. So, when you have capitalism tempered with socialism, you end up in this situation where there really are no principles there. No one's standing up for life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Instead, they're standing up for what happens to be most, um, you know, pragmatic at the time, what happens to be most expedient at the time. And they do it by violating those rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. They do it by having one pressure group apply force on another group and it becomes this battle amongst groups. And that's what we're seeing playing out all across America. And it's not just in economic terms. We're seeing it playing out in racial terms, in um, class terms. I mean, across the board, it's varying pressure groups all battling amongst themselves. So, um, you know, it, it's just it's a fascinating issue to talk about the differences between Republicans and Democrats, because so many people think that they're so darn similar. Um, excuse me. So many people, they think they're so darn different when, in fact, they're very, very similar. And I'm going to go through that in more detail. But before I do, I just want to tee this up. And I've, I've shared this a little bit in other podcast episodes, but I want to kind of share my own story. So, you know, I, I was. um you know, initially raised in a single parent household. My my father was was killed when my mother was pregnant with me, and I was raised by my mom, my grandmother, and my aunt, and in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so you figure San Francisco, you know, Irish Catholic, 
a lot of Democrats, right? My mom worked for a trucking company. She was a, um, an accounting clerk for a trucking company in San Francisco. She was a teamster. Okay. So I kind of was part of this, you know, I remember in 72, when I was seven years old, family members were all voting for McGovern. Okay. Cause everyone was a Democrat, um, in my family. And so, that was my first exposure to politics. I didn't really understand it. I wasn't interested. I was more interested in following baseball or BMX. Um, and then I remember I was in high school one time and Ronald Reagan was given a speech, one of those national addresses to the nation. I remember my mother got very angry and changed the station because she was upset that Ronald Reagan was going to take away benefits for my grandmother. Um, but still, I didn't really understand why, and, and I, I just wasn't on my radar. Um, but anyways, I ended up going to college. I went to UC San Diego, just down the road here in La Jolla. And again, yeah, I get there, and you know, I'm not politically minded at all, and I'm in the dorms. And it was just interesting. Is I was very much like a fish out of water because everyone I talked to there, their parents were doctors and lawyers and you know business executives and and everything else. And here, you know, my mother works as an accounting clerk for a trucking company, and my father, my stepfather, is an unemployed truck driver. And so my world was very different than a lot of the worlds of the people that surrounded me in college. And I was, you know, I worked my way through college. I got a little bit of help from my parents, but I worked almost nonstop through college. So my world was very different. And as I got into college, you know, I became more and more exposed to political issues. And that's the beauty of college. And um, I remember the abortion issue, of course, was, was a hot issue then. And, and it struck me, you know, when it was first explained, a woman should have a right to her own body. And I was thought, that makes sense. And I aligned with the Democrats on that because that was sort of my default. Right. Um, and this notion of pro-choice really stuck with me. And it was something that I thought was important. And then and then I became exposed to the whole um, LGBTQ thing. But back then, what did we call it? I think we called it GLAD, Gay and Lesbian Alliance I can't remember what the D stood for, but GLAD was um, a, a social organization, a club for gay and lesbians. And that was like a whole other, like, you know, opening up my mind to some of these ideas. And I was like, yeah, right on, you know, just live and let live. That made sense to me. Um, but at the same time, I was in a fraternity and um, the fraternity was great. I was in Talk Kappa Epsilon. I was a teak and great people in that fraternity. Met, so I met some uh, my best friends, some friends that I'm extremely close to. To this day, one of them might talk about my friend Jack in this podcast. That's how we met was through the fraternity. We were in the same dorm complex, but we really didn't get to know each other until the fraternity days. But in a fraternity, you can imagine. I mean, I was surrounded by a bunch of people that came from rich families and they were all huge Reagan fans. I mean, 99 percent of the people in my fraternity were Republicans. And so when the 84 election came around, they were all big, you know, Reagan. And and it's still I wasn't really into it, but. I, I, it took me a while to figure it out, you know, like, well, Reagan is a Republican or is he a Democrat? And, and is he a right wing or left wing? And, you know, here I was, I was a math computer science major and I wasn't really in poli sci or, you know, I wasn't going down that pathway. So I remember I had to, I remember that it was, they were all R's. It was Reagan, Republican and right wing, R, R, R. And actually you can add a fourth one now, red. So it's easy to remember that. And the ones that weren't R's were the, the other side, the Democrats, the, the left wing. 
including the um, you know the, the non Reagans and and in this case blue. Um, so I, I learned these things along the way and. Um, you know, I when I was in college, I, I became a lot more politically engaged um, in my I was a five year guy there. So my fourth year, I ran for student government and I was elected as a senator from Warren College. And immediately I'm on the on the student council at UCSD, which is kind of a big deal. And um, I started my eyes really opened up to a lot of things politically on campus, but more politically from a state and national scope. And then the following year, I was elected student body president at UCSD. San Diego, um, and which was a was awesome and was a huge life accomplishment. It was a big deal, um, and I, I greatly enjoyed that one year um, of my of my college experience. And I became much more politically aware. And during this whole time, you know, here I've got this background of like having this Teamster San Francisco blue collar. Democrat upbringing, but not really politically engaged. Then I'm socializing with a lot of people that are rich and Republican and Reagan supporters. And and I'm sort of like not really in either camp. Um, I remember I originally registered as a Democrat and I voted for Mondale in 84 um, just because it was the default. And then in 88, I was still a Democrat and, you know, and I, I voted for Dukakis, but around that time is when I started to have misgivings because that's when I was out of college and I was at a salary gig. And I, well, I remember I looked at my paycheck and I went, OMG, look how much money is taken out of my paycheck. And I was like, holy moly. So I think it was like roughly 30 to 33% grand total when it was federal tax, state tax, payroll taxes, everything. And I was like, oh, okay, now I understand what a lot of these um, right wing Republicans have been saying about tax rates. And so and that was around that time that I was thinking, you know, I'm not really Republican. There's things about the Republicans I like, but a lot I don't like. And there's things about the Democrats I like, but there's a lot I don't like. And I was in this sort of limbo, this in-between position and didn't feel comfortable in either camp. Um, And so if you know where I stand today, you're probably thinking, oh, yeah, that's very much consistent with where I am now in 2020. And here this is like 1988. And I was out of college and I was living up in Los Angeles. I was working for Wang Laboratories. I was a computer salesperson uh, for one of the big mid-range computer companies in the late 80s, which is a great career start. Lots of training. I flew back to Boston all the time for corporate training, learned to sell. It was a really good experience. The company didn't survive much longer after that. The whole mid, the mid-range computer industry really kind of uh, bottomed out when the personal computers hit. But it was still a really good job coming out of college. Um, but I was living up in L.A. and I would listen to talk radio. And I remember listening to KFI AM 640 in Los Angeles. And they had a host, Tom Likas. I don't know if you remember him. Um, he was nationally pretty big for a while. I'm not sure if he really has a show any longer. I, frankly, I don't even know if he's still alive. But he was big in Los Angeles in the late 80s and early 90s. And then, then, then John and Ken came along and then took that drive time time slot. And John and Ken, I think, are still going strong on KFI like 30 years later. But Lycus was an interesting character. And I really liked him. He was funny. And he had really interesting political takes. I remember that was during the whole Solomon Rushdie thing. And, and people were angry that Solomon Rushdie was calling for a, was it a jihad? on Americans because they, um, 
because no, wait, wait a minute. Let me say this again. Solomon Rushdie came out with the book Satanic Verses and Solomon Rushdie um, was was trying to, uh, you know, stay alive. So he was in hiding. And that's right. The um, the. The Iranian government came out and condemned um, Solomon Rushdie for that book. A lot of Americans were upset because they believed in freedom of speech, freedom um, of the press, etc. And then it was Cat Stevens. Pardon me. It was Cat Stevens that came out speaking against Solomon Rushdie. Um, and then Tom Likas. And this is around the time that the Cat Stevens had converted fully to, to Islam, had changed his name, had become, you know, a, basically a completely religious person, had abandoned his musical career. But Tom Likas, I remember, got all the Cat Stevens records and had a big, uh, like a stunt and got one of those steamrollers and rolled over. And this is when, you know, everyone had vinyl or cassettes, maybe some eight tracks, and demolished all the Cat Stevens albums, which was funnier than hell. Um, but I always enjoyed him and he would talk about this whole idea of libertarianism and I'm like what what is that and it, I didn't understand it because my whole world was like there was just two ways to think right there was Republican and Democrat there was right wing and left wing there was you know Reagan and 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 uh, Mondale or Bush and Dukakis it was you were always just served up two there were only two philosophies and I thought but neither one of those fit me neither one of those I felt comfortable in because there are parts I liked and a lot of parts I didn't like. And he explained what was interesting is that beauty of, of libertarianism is that you can have freedom personally. You can have personal liberty. So if you want to have gays can marry or a woman can have an abortion, you have a right to your own life. If you want to smoke pot, whatever, you know, you have personal liberty. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's right on. Um, and that was kind of the part of the Democrat side that I liked. But then he also said, well, you also with libertarianism, you have um, economic freedom. You have less taxes, you know, less control over businesses and regulations, more economic liberty. And I thought, oh, I like that. That was the part of the Republicans I liked. But I didn't like their restrictions on personal liberty. And I was like, this is awesome. It was a, a light bulb went off over my head. It was this is perfect. This is what actually fits me. And. So I, I was my mind was wide open to that concept. And so I began learning more about it. And, you know, I eventually like registered in the Libertarian Party and I was part of that party. I wasn't an active member, but I voted that way. And then, you know, after 2000, 2010, by that time, California had enacted that top two law so that essentially the top two vote getters in the primary are the only ones that go to the general election, which meant third parties, which were already completely getting killed by the system. We have less success. And then by that time, I, you know, I, I decided I wasn't going to be a libertarian party member. I was going to still retain the philosophy, but not the, the party membership. And so I um, decided to declare myself independent. I felt very good about that. And then since then, the libertarian party has kind of gotten more kooky. So the party itself is in disarray. I keep rooting for them, hoping they're going to get their act together. But philosophically, I was still in that camp. Um, and then you know, there was a moment where I was frustrated and I thought, you can't beat him, join him. Maybe I should just give it up and just get aligned with the Republicans or Democrats, just get get in the game. And I remember going through each of the party platforms, the Republicans and the Democrats, and on the platform it's what they say, not what they actually do. But what they said, I went down the list and my 
my approval of each of their party platforms, their scores for me were very similar and very weak. Um, I think I was probably like a 40% alignment with each party. And so I thought, well, I can't join either one of these because neither one of them fit. So I ended up um, just, you know, just saying the heck with it. And and I'm just going to remain independent. I feel good about that. And so I think a lot of the commentary I do on this podcast is from that perspective where I'm I'm politically independent. I'm not Republican. I'm not Democrat, but I definitely have a more libertarian view of the world, um, which is all about personal liberty and economic liberty. And now I've been learning more about objectivism and a lot of other things, which really reinforce kind of provides a lot of that philosophical background to the things that I believe. And so, and that's kind of where my mind is. But as I went through this whole process, the thing that I began to learn more importantly than anything was that these two parties, they they say how different they are, right? They That, you know, this is the most important election of a lifetime because the other party is so terrible. They're going to destroy America, destroy um, democracy. America is going to dissolve. It's going to go down the chutes if that other party is elected. And you hear this from both sides. And you if you pay attention to the rhetoric, then you, you can get caught up in the flurry of it. But in so many cases, what they do is just so different. But more importantly, what it is, is that they get you focused on those differences. They get you focused on abortion or gay rights or um, income inequality or, you know, racial strife. They get you. I mean, all those issues are legitimate issues. OK, but they get you focused on those shiny objects And then meanwhile, over here on all these other issues, they're almost perfectly aligned, but they never talk about them. Like when you're in a debate, when when they have a political debate, there's a whole list of questions that they never talk about ever. I mean, how often do they talk about things like, um, you know, gerrymandering of districts or, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, you know, progressive taxation. <laughs> you hear a little bit of that in the debates or, you know, things like the Patriot Act. How often do you hear about that in the debates? Like almost never, because they're always talking about these other things. And it's a distraction. It's a it's a it's a, a, a kind of a head fake, you know, like when a basketball player kind of gives you a head fake there and passes it this way. They distract you so that they can manipulate the system when you're not looking. And so there, there was a, this just a great quote. And I read this from a previous podcast episode, but I'm going to read it again because it's so darn good. And it's from Noam Chomsky, who's, uh, you know, a leftist. Um, he's actually a linguist, um, but definitely a guy that I wouldn't necessarily say is part of my belief system. But every once in a while, our Venn diagrams overlap. And so Noam Chomsky said the smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum. Okay, those are those shiny objects, those wedge issues, abortion, gay rights, um, you know, income inequality, Black Lives Matter. All of those are important issues, but they limit the discussion to just those. So um, limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum. Even encourage the more critical and dissident views, which we're seeing with Antifa and all this other stuff, right? It's playing out on the streets of Poway, out on the intersection of Twin Peaks and Pomerado. Um, That gives people the sense that there's free thinking going on, while at the same time, presuppositions of the system are being reinforced 
by the limits put on the range of debate. So there's the conversation on other topics is just not occurring because there is so much focus on those wedge issues. So the, and the media is in cahoots with it all, you know, whether it's CNN or Fox or MSNBC or CBS or even so-called down the middle, you know, like AP News or Reuters, um, they, who are normally thought of as being the most unbiased. But they're kind of in cahoots with the whole thing, too, because you often hear that they say they're not biased, right? They're not left wing. But they're not right wing. They try to play at both sides. They want to get both sides. They want to have balance. But there's more than two sides. It's not just left and right, Republican and Democrat. There are all these other points of view. There are all these other issues that just aren't discussed. They're not brought up by the media. And then the media never covers those candidates that are not Republican or Democrat. The media often runs the debates in many cases, like the presidential ones. There's the Commission on Presidential Debates, which, by the way, are sponsored by corporate America. But from a lot of the other debates, um, whether they're at the state level or you know even in some regional levels where there's partisan races, a lot of times those debates don't invite third party candidates. They just leave them out, you know, so they're in cahoots with um, with with these politicians. John Carson says Chomsky is the father of outrage culture and the current environment where intelligent conversation about tough topics can't be held. Yeah. Yeah. Chomsky. Again, I don't fully understand him. I just know that he's not aligned with how I think I'm all about having difficult discussions. And I do that in this podcast. Um, But he's right in this case. You know, they want to keep the focus on a narrow set of issues, think that there's tremendous variance and lively debate and good and evil within that narrow range. But they don't discuss all these other issues. So here I'm I'm going to go through a, a list of things and I'll offer some comment down the road. But there's, in my opinion, the Republicans and Democrats are way more similar than they are different. I would say they're 90 percent the same. Now, people will say the parties aren't the same and they're right. They're not the same, but they're very, very similar. They're not. There's only differences of degree, not of kind. Uh, So, I mean, take, for example, foreign policy. How long has the Afghanistan war been going on? It's been like 20 years. And it doesn't matter if it's a Republican in office uh, as commander in chief or a Democrat in office. There's the Afghan war. I mean, even the Iraq war, many people say, oh, yeah, that was Bush um, and that was the Republicans. But, you know, a lot of Democrats like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden voted for the Iraq war. So did John Edwards and 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 um, a lot of other candidates that were hoping to run for president. They voted for the Iraq war. And then even President Obama, who so-called got us out of Iraq was putting soldiers back into Iraq in the second term. So and then you think about the drone war that's going on that really started under Bush and was expanded by Obama, has been expanded even more by Trump. So from a foreign policy perspective, is there really that big of a difference? I mean, the Vietnam War was Republicans and Democrats. You know, it was started in Eisenhower and then Kennedy and and then LBJ and then Nixon. So you got two Republicans, two Democrats. And we can go down the list of a lot of all these other, you know, uh, military conflicts. The Republicans and Democrats both want military bases all around the world. They want America to serve as the world police. But where's the alternative perspective? Where's the one that's saying we need to withdraw people from those bases? We need to get America out of those wars. 
Now, sometimes you'll hear people talk about it, like Trump ran on that in 2016, but he's not changing the policy. He's expanded the drone war. The only one that really, I think, was talking about it and actually meant what he said was probably Ron Paul. That's one of the reasons I liked him. Um, but even things like on foreign policy, like NAFTA and, the, and NAFTA, you remember that was um, cooked up originally by George H.W. Bush, but I think signed into law by Clinton, if I recall. Um, and then Trump made a big deal out of NAFTA. It's a bad deal, terrible deal. You know, and remember Perot said it was a giant sucking sound of jobs leaving America. But Trump said it was a terrible deal. He's going to renegotiate the deal. And he did. But there's very little difference between the old deal and the new deal. So, you know, and, and then if you look at WTO and all these other trade agreements, Republicans and Democrats generally are aligned on this. They want some kind of a rigged system for trade. They want to apply tariffs and all these other rules um, that lead to trade deficits and all these other situations that come from it. Um, but really, none of them support free trade. They're only variances on how much rigged trade they want to do. You know, Trump calls it fair trade. But there's no such thing as fair trade when you're doing it as an as a trade policy between nations. The only kind of fair trade is when a buyer and a seller agree. Um, but the point is, is that none of them are supporting free trade. They all want some degree of rig trade. Um, and then, you know, they both hand out cash payments to other nations. Um, they're both staunch supporters of Israel. They both were, uh, both parties were for regime change in Iraq. I mean, before the war, I mean, we can go down the list. So from a foreign policy perspective, not at that big of a difference. Yeah. You know, Trump went and visited, you know, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, but did anything change? No, nothing changed. We still have troops in the DMZ. Nothing really changed. You know, once you get beyond all the rhetoric and all the Trump BS, you look at the actual policies, what's actually happening, not that big of a difference. I mean, look at the budget. The budget just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It doesn't matter if it's Republican or Democrat. The Republicans are saying they want to cut spending, but they increase spending. Some people say they increase it more than the Democrats do, and that's probably true. But the point is, is neither side wants to cut the budget. They won't, And they might say they will, but they never do. For them, cutting the budget means just increasing it at a slower rate. And, so there, and the national debt is just exploding, but no one cares. The Republicans sometimes, like during the Tea Party area, they talked about it, but they never did anything about it. Um, and now Trump is – Trump campaign in 2016, he wanted to pay off the federal debt, which at that time was about $19 trillion. He said he'd pay it off in eight years, the whole thing. It was total bullshit. It was a total lie. And what did he do? He just massively expanded spending, massively expanded the deficit, massively expanded the debt. And that was before COVID. Then when COVID hit, oh, my God, it went to crazy world and it became even worse. Um, None of them care about balanced budgets. You know, there was a time when the um, the Democrats took great pride. Bill Clinton balanced the budget for four years. Well, what happened to that? You know, they they don't care about balanced budgets anymore. The Republicans say they want to pass a balanced budget amendment, but they never do. Even when they have full power, even when they have control over the Senate, the House and the White House, they still don't pass a balanced budget amendment, but it becomes a very handy talking point when you're on the campaign trail. It's, this is what they talk about, but not what they actually do. What they actually do is both parties just don't care about the debt. They just want to spend and spend and spend to, so they get reelected and reelected. 
So they have more and more power and more and more control. Um, take Social Security, for example. Um, really, you, you'll hear some chirping from the right that they want to change it. Um, some might want to increase the retirement age. Some people think there should be means testing. Um, some people claim the Republicans want to privatize the whole thing, but they never do. I mean, even when Bush was president, he had a proposal to privatize a teeny tiny slice of Social Security that it was only a small fraction of your future earnings could go into a private account. All the rest of it had to go into the same public agency and all of the historical withholdings, which, by the way, had been loaned out, had to remain in the government system. That was Bush's proposal. It didn't pass even when the Republicans had full control. So the Republicans don't want to change Social Security. And then you'll hear the Democrats say that they want to expand Social Security. They want to, you know, but mostly that's from the Bernie and the leftists, but they never do it. They just talk about it on the campaign trail. They talk about the rhetoric to make them seem like they're different. But in reality, Social Security is largely unchanged. There were some modest reforms under Reagan, but none since then. They won't touch it. Um, take things like... Um, yeah, government support of, of labor unions, you know, for government workers. That's a bipartisan thing. Um, whether you're seeing Republicans or Democrats trying to get the support of um, union workers, whether they be prison workers or police or teachers, you know, they're all trying to get those endorsements from those government worker unions. They, the, the Republicans and Democrats might get try to get different unions to approve them, but in the end, they want the union endorsement. They do a quid pro quo. They pay the union uh, employees more, and then those union employees go back and re-endorse that candidate. And we see that play out even at the local level. I've talked about that a lot with our school district. And then look at tax policy. So People will say, well, the, the Republicans, they just want tax cuts for the rich. That's all they care about is tax cuts for the rich. But look at Trump. Trump was just came out in the news. He had not paid taxes for, I don't know, 10 out of 15 years. But that was during the Obama era. He didn't pay taxes many of those years. So what they do is, is it's, again, it's a sleight of hand. They, they get us. They get us fighting over the percentages of the tax rate, you know? So, um, was it Trump? I think reduced the corporate tax rate. Was it from 35 down to 21? I think is what it was. They get us fighting over that. Um, and then what did, what did Bush do? He ended up lowering the top rates, I think, down to like the top marginal rate. I think was he got it lower to 39.6. It used to be 40% or higher, which, by the way, is just outright criminal, in my opinion. But what was interesting is, is that if you look at the actual effective taxes that people pay, not a big difference. I mean, if you look at the, the effective tax rate, and I say effective, meaning after you apply all the deductions and, and, um, and withholdings and the loopholes and everything else that's built into the tax code, the effective amount of tax paid as a percentage of revenue for the top 1% hasn't changed very much since the 1950s, even though the tax code is this hot and heavy debate. And it's because the system is rigged. The, the tax 
code has so many exceptions and all these carve outs that are set up just for special interests. And that's what the lobbyists do. And they end up reelecting, helping reelect those politicians that do that for them. But meanwhile, they get us fighting over the tax rate. How many actual politicians are, are really proposing not a, something different than a progressive tax, like a flat tax? You'll sometimes hear it from the Republicans, but they never win. And even when they do propose it, people come unglued about it. So um, they all want varying forms of progressive taxation. And even those that come out with a proposal, the Republicans that do come out with a proposal for a flat tax, it's never a pure flat tax. It's usually no income tax at all for like the first twenty-five or thirty or $35,000 worth of income. So it becomes still a progressive tax model, just less graduated, I guess. Maybe it's only two or three steps rather than many steps. Um, so they're all for progressive taxation, both Republicans and Democrats. They're all both for a very complicated tax code that has carve outs for special interests. The Republicans do it. The Democrats do it. There's only slight differences in degree, not in kind. Um, you can look at the fact that they're all for really high tax rates in general. You know, some people will say, oh, my God, you know, the tax cuts for the rich, they want to lower them. But the rich still pay a huge percentage of the overall tax base. But more importantly, when the income tax was created in 1913, it would only really apply to one percent of the nation. And the top tax rate was seven percent for over half of America's history. There's been no income tax, zero percent. You know, they mostly, the federal government mostly got money from tariffs, but you'll hear people get just so out of control talking about the Republicans want tax cuts for the rich, but in the end, it's still a really high percentage. They only maybe quibble about those percentages, but then still underneath the hood, when you look at the, at the withholdings and the deductions and the tax shelters, in the end, they end up paying very little. And again, Trump is a great example of that. Um, yeah. And then even like, remember when President Obama, he campaigned in 2008, I'm going to get rid of tax cuts for the rich. And in 2010, when the tax cuts for Bush's tax cuts were sunsetting, what did Obama do? He renewed them, all of them. And then when it got to 2012, what did Obama do? He renewed it for all of them except 1%. So the 99% of the people were able to keep the tax rate from Trump and only the top 1% saw their tax rates slightly change. So again, on the tax policy, the Republicans and Democrats, very, very, very similar, just slight variations of degree, yet they make it sound like, you know, that it's the Yankees and the Red Sox, that they're arch enemies, when, when really they're in cahoots with each other. Um, monetary policy, you know, the, the, the Federal Reserve making, you know, cranking out money out of thin air. We're seeing that now in the COVID bailouts. And, and then they both bail out the banks. They both bail out big corporations. You know, the, the auto bailout was started by Bush and continued by Obama. Um, the bailouts um, have existed under Reagan. What was the bailouts under Reagan? Was it it wasn't Boeing. It was Chrysler, Lee Iacocca and Chrysler. And then there were the bailouts of Boeing. There was then the bailouts of all kinds of other corporations, even before 
the um, dot-com bubble and even before the Great Recession. Remember all the bailouts from the savings and loan crisis? That was under Reagan. So there are bailouts, when no matter if it's Republicans or Democrats. Um, so you're thinking, well, which party is, <clears throat> excuse me, the 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 pro-corporatist party. Which party is in the pockets of the corporations? Everyone thinks that it's the Republicans. The answer, it's both. Both parties are in the pockets of the corporate powers. I mean, take elections, the whole election process, um, gerrymandering, both parties do it. Both parties will rig um, and draw these ridiculous boundary lines to set up systems where um, you know, they're able to retain seats. Sometimes you'll hear the Democrats say, yeah, but the Republicans do it more. Well, okay, maybe they do do it more, but they both do it. There's only a difference in degree, not in kind. Um, and yeah, they both rig elections to make it difficult for third parties, which I've talked to, uh, talked about a lot. And how about, um, yeah, like the whole drug war. Now you're finally starting to see a relaxation on drugs for marijuana, and both Republicans and Democrats coming around on that. Um, it's been a slow, a slow um, progression. But for, I mean, Joe Biden, until very recently, I, he's been against decriminalization of marijuana at the federal level, which is ridiculous. I mean, marijuana is a medicine. Marijuana is way safer than alcohol. Um, marijuana is not something it's a plant it's not something that should be criminalized my goodness so um but for the longest time the democrats wanted to keep it illegal and biden especially biden may have changed his tune with this platform um, but all the other drugs both parties want to keep them illegal even though you go to a country like portugal where they've decriminalized drugs and drug deaths are down drug violence is down the system is way improved when the drugs are decriminalized because there's no underground selling. There's no violence. Um, you know, when people are buying and selling in an underground fashion, just like with prohibition of alcohol, when alcohol prohibition ended, violence went down, gun deaths went down. If they did that with drugs, we would see gun violence go down. I mean, people talk about black on black crime and, and, and the gun shootings in, in Chicago. And why don't the Democrats take care of that? Well, you know what? Gun shootings across America would dramatically decline if they decriminalized uh, drugs and people could buy drugs safely rather than having, you know, people in an underground market where when there's bad deals that go south, you know, they, they, it's vigilantism to enforce those deals. Um, and like, yeah, nanny state initiatives like seatbelts and helmet laws, that's bipartisan. Um, you can go down the list, you know, forced charity. I mean, gosh, uh, so much of the federal budget is about essentially forced charity, forced redistribution. You hear Republicans say, you know, people think Republicans are against welfare, but President Bush expanded food stamps. Um, you'll hear people say that um, the Republicans not only want to privatize Social Security and, and or abolish it, which they never do and never will. They also say that people say that the Republicans want to abolish Medicare. But Bush expanded Medicare. Bush expanded Medicare for prescription drugs. And then people would say, well, Paul Ryan was trying to privatize and abolish Medicare. What Paul Ryan was trying to do was increase funding for 
a newer version of Medicare that gave people vouchers that they can use in the open market. It was still an insurance model that was provided by the federal government, just a kind of a different way of constructing it. But in the end, spending was going to go up under a Republican proposal. So in the end, you know, they're both for massive redistribution and in some cases forced charity, and they're both for government-run schools. You know, you'll hear people say, well, the Republicans, you know, they just want to privatize the schools and they want religious schools. But the point is, is no matter where you go, there's public education for in, in red states and in blue states. And, you know, when President Bush was the was, you know, president of the United States, the Department of Education under Bush, that funding for that department almost doubled under President Bush during his eight years. And people say that the Republicans are against education and they want to abolish public education. Not true. They're, they're both for public education. They, can, they might have a difference of opinion on how much funding. But heck, I mean, look here at Poway Unified um, on the Poway Unified School Board. T.J. Zane is one of the school board members. He is all about paying, you know, expanding the budget, paying teachers more. He's very much like a Democrat, yet he was the executive director of the San Diego County Republican Party. He fought against the unions um, when he was on the soapbox, when he was running the Lincoln Club in downtown San Diego. So when as a Republican, when he was showcasing rhetoric, he was saying he was against unions, perhaps said he was against education. I don't know. But. The actions very much aligned. So that's what I say with Republicans and Democrats judge actions, not words. The words they try to make you sound like they're very different. But in reality, their policies are very, very, very similar. It might be a slight variation. And they and no one ever talks about the areas where they have really strong alignment. They only talk about the areas where there's a supposed difference. Take privacy, for example. Um, The Patriot Act was created under President Bush, right? It was expanded on by President Obama. And then there was surveillance, you know, with um, the NSA, you know, with the government reading uh, people's emails and phone records and all of that. That started with the Patriot Act under Bush. Under Obama, it expanded. It expanded to a degree that it totally violated the Fourth Amendment of illegal search and seizure. Edward Snowden caught Obama on that, spoke out about it. Um, so again, you're seeing who about privacy and surveillance, which party is against it? None of them. They're both for it, just in varying degrees. You can make an argument that maybe the Democrats want even more. And then go to things like checkpoints, whether it's a TSA at the airport or it's drunk driving checkpoints. These are all cases where there's people being, you know, search and seizure without a warrant, search and seizure without probable cause. Yet both parties do it. What's the difference? Not much. Not much at all. Then take corporate America. We can go down the list. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, Bruce McCoy chimes in. It seems the main difference is in how, not why. Well, if you get down to how they're different um, or what they do, again, you have to separate the rhetoric from the actions. You have to separate the words on the campaign trail from how they vote. They're very different. Now, the people, the people that call themselves Republicans or Democrats, yeah, they may have very different views. I'm talking about the politicians. The politicians are very much similar. Um, Now, take corporate America. They're both 
for a massive regulatory state. President Trump was elected in 2016, said he was in a massively cut regulations and he did cut some regulations, but it's still a hugely regulated uh, marketplace. Nowhere near, you know, free markets, not even close, not even close. There's only a varying difference of opinion on how much regulatory action there should be. And prior to Trump, the Republicans kept adding more and more regulations. The regulatory code kept growing and growing. Um, and they're both for, you know, being a centrally planned economy, not one that's driven by buyers and sellers, by consumers and producers, but economy that's driven by bureaucrats and central planners that are pushing buttons and pulling levers and trying to manipulate and manage the economy and doing it to reward certain people at the expense of others, doing it in such a way to use what I said earlier, kind of a pressure system, a, a case of different factions fighting amongst the pot of money of tax dollars and of power from the regulatory code. So there's only that slight difference. They're both for corporate welfare. Um, you know, whether it's for, uh, you know, certain kinds of like, for example, Solyndra with Obama, and that was a huge bailout. Solyndra, by the way, was owned by one of the richest men in America who also was a major campaign contributor to president Obama. And they were making some kind of was it solar panels or some kind of green energy technology? They went out of business or they lost money and Obama bailed them out and the Democrats bailed them out. And the Republicans will bail out, you know, banks and, and other, you know, Wall Street. So and, and really the TARP bailouts were bipartisan. Bush was president. Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House when that went down in 0708. So the whole TARP thing is bipartisan. So the corporate bailouts are bipartisan. The military industrial complex, bipartisan, you know, building more and more um, weapons of war and Northrop Grumman and, and, and all these other large defense contractors making more tanks and planes. And is there a difference? You know, you'll hear the rhetoric of the Democrats that they want to reduce the defense spending. You know, Jesse Jackson would say farms, not arms, you know, but the, the Democrats still spend a ton of money on defense, you know, and putting money in defense contractors pockets. Some could say that a lot of these Mideast wars and drone wars are driven by that as just a boondoggle for those defense contractors. And that's why the Afghanistan war and the drone war have been going on for 20 years, for two decades under both Republican and Democratic presidents. Take, um, you know, Big Pharma and the, the case of Medicare Part D, which I talked about. The Republicans expanded Medicare Part D, they expanded Medicare to include prescription drugs. That was Bush and a Republican majority in Congress. And then what did Obama do? Obama expanded it. Remember, they had the donut hole and Obama helped fill part of that donut hole, providing more and more benefits for the seniors, which sounds good. But in the end, that's more corporate welfare for big pharma. And then big pharma turns around and rewards the politicians. So the Republicans and the Democrats, very similar, just slight degrees of difference. Um, illegal immigration is a great one. The Republicans will talk about illegal immigration, how terrible it is. But Obama deported more people than Trump, even on an annual basis. Um, they talk about wanting to build a wall, but even when the Republicans have control, they can't fund it they, because they don't agree. So the whole notion of immigration, we're kind of stuck in a status quo. No change. Both keep re-upping and, and uh, re, refunding the, those those. Um, immigration agencies, those border protection agencies, but nothing really 
significantly changes. So Bush was able to, or excuse me, Trump was able to expand the wall. Like how much? Like a few hundred miles, something like that. And how long's the border? That's like 2000 miles. There's, and most of the wall that was put up under Trump was a replacement for the old wall that was put up by either Clinton or Obama. So a lot of this is bipartisan. There's not that big of a difference. Um, and then take things like um, PBS and NPR and public broadcasting. The Republicans say they're going to get rid of it. You remember that Mitt Romney is going to kill Big Bird is what we heard. But those guys keep getting funding. It doesn't matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat majority in the House, majority in the Senate at the White House. Those things continue. There's no difference. Maybe a slight difference in the amount of money they get, but really not that big of a difference. But they get everyone arguing over the money that goes to Planned Parenthood. That becomes the shiny object, the distraction, the wedge issue. Meanwhile, they're funding all these other agencies identically or very similarly. Um, And uh, yeah, even nationalized health care is a really good one where people will say, well, the the. Democrats, they want socialized medicine. And this is America. We can't have socialized medicine. Well, even when the Democrats had full control under Obama, they even had a 60 in the Senate. They, they not only could not pass single payer, they couldn't even pass public option. So the Democrats, yeah, there's some of the, 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 the lefties like AOC and Bernie and the squad, you know, they want single payer. But when you look at the Democrat uh, politicians and even Democratic voters, a lot of them don't want it for a number of different reasons. It's not that big of a difference. Then if you look at the Republicans and people say, well, the Republicans, you know, they want free markets for health care. But no, they don't. The Republicans, Bush expanded Medicare, (laughs) you know, under Republicans, roughly half of the healthcare insurance is managed by the government with Medicare, Medicaid, VA. It's all managed. That's, those are all essentially the equivalent of a single payer system, you know, just within different agencies. Um, and then even in the, the healthcare that's provided outside of that scope is in a massively regulated marketplace. And even the Republicans, they don't ever pass free market health care. You know, Trump promised he was going to have a new system replace America, replace Obamacare. Has he done anything? No. He's made a couple of like, you know, we, we took away the mandate, but nothing's really changed. He's still a big supporter of, um, you know, ensuring um, uh, pre-existing conditions. And we could debate that, whether that's good or bad, but the end result is, is that both Republicans and Democrats are the same on that. Not a big difference. Um, and then even you talk about socialism, even here in Poway, we have a we have a Republican mayor. We have a Republican city council. Every one of them is Republican, as far as I know. Now, Mayor Voss is talking about providing Internet for free for um, like these Wi-Fi hotspots to help provide free broadband for I think it was 200 low income families. Now. You may say that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that doesn't match up with what people think of Republicans. That matches up with what people think of Democrats. And you might say, well, yeah, Voss is running for office. He wants to be the supervisor. But yeah, the supervisor of East County, San Diego County, that's overwhelmingly Republican. 
So he doesn't really even have to appease Democrats, maybe a little bit, maybe as a way to separate himself from Joel Anderson. But the end result is, is that the rhetoric that comes that we hear about the Republicans and Democrats does not match the reality, does not match their actions. And then even other things like the the federal government owns 30 percent of the land in the United States. 30%, probably almost all of Nevada as a good, that's a good example, Nevada. But we could look at 30% of United States territory is owned by the federal government. Has that ever debated ever? (laughs) And both the Republicans and the Democrats are aligned. The only time you'll hear a slight discussion is whether or not um, certain federal lands are going to be leased to oil companies to do drilling or fracking. But that's just a tiny, tiny percent of the 30 percent of federal land. So, again, differences in degree, not in kind. Um, you know, the government's in the business of healthcare and scientific research. I mean, we can go down the list. Just a tremendous amount of similarity. And even like with guns, people said, oh, well, Obama, once he's elected, they're going to take away your guns. They didn't take away the guns. The gun laws didn't change very much under Obama, but under Trump, the gun laws changed. There was a ban on bump stocks that came after the Las Vegas shooting, a horrible event. But, you know, the the Republicans are the ones that are supposedly going to protect the Second Amendment. And Trump arguably um, has infringed on the Second Amendment rights. Um, But in the end, that's really a tiny, tiny overall change in in gun laws, the banning of bump stocks. But really, do gun laws change that much under Republicans and Democrats? Not really. But but it serves as a really, really good talking point when people are out on the campaign trail. So, you know, and go on and on. I mean, so here's another article from U.S. Politics and Policy. It ranks the most important issues in the 2020 election. The economy is number one. But how different are they on the economy? Like right now under COVID, sure, the Democrats want to close part of it. The Republicans want to open most of it. But a lot of that's politically driven. I mean, obviously, the, the more the economy is dragging, the better off that, ha- that helps the Democrats. So let's be real. But really, from an economic perspective, you know, Trump likes to say, I had the greatest economy ever before COVID. Like, no, you didn't. It was 2% GDP growth. It was really anemic. There's not that big of a difference. Um, Obama coming out of the recession, he had one of the slowest recovery rates ever. And then Bush or Trump becomes president and it's still slow because they're both in so much agreement on so much regulatory overhead that slows the economy down. So um, in the end, I mean, these parties are very, very similar, but yet they distract you by talking about these shiny objects, these wedge objects like abortion and gun rights and gay rights and racial uh, pro, uh, racial issues and criminal injustice. And every one of those are legitimate issues. But every one of those, the differences between the Republicans and Democrats are very slight, very just little changes in degree. And meanwhile, there's a whole other list of issues that they never talk about and they're in full agreement. It's again, it's like a magic trick. You know, they're, when one hand is, is getting you distracted, the other hand is, is uh, you know, doing the dirty deed behind the curtain. So 
Um, we're, yeah, yeah, we're about an hour and 15 into this, but if you want to continue the conversation, reach out to me on social media. You can, uh, find the John Riley project Facebook page. I post all the episodes there. That's where the live stream is here. And again, we encourage your participation in the live stream. Um, we also um, have the John Riley Project Insiders Group. You're welcome to join us there. Have some more intimate discussions. You got to answer a few questions to get in, but we let everyone in. So search John Riley Project Insiders Group on Facebook and join us there. And you can also look me up on Twitter. Um, we got a couple of great guests that are going to be on next week. So Monday, um, October 12th at 2 p.m. Because we're always doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 2 p.m. live stream. So Monday. The 12th at 2 p.m., we'll have Poway City Council candidate Chris Olps will be back on the John Riley Project podcast. Uh, Chris announced his candidacy on this podcast back in May of 2019. Um, got a huge head start. Um, so really curious to see how he's doing how his campaign is going. We've had his two competitors on the podcast, got to know both Frank Fournier and the incumbent Kalen Frank. So it'll be good to check in with Chris and see how he's doing and learn about some of his, you know, updated proposals for Poway. Um, and then on Friday, October 16th, thankfully we'll have a break from politics, which I really want to get to, but I keep, that's all we're talking about because of the election. But um, Jennifer Klein will be joining us on Friday, the 16th. Jennifer is a musician, an artist, um, really an interesting person. She joined our podcast uh, about a year, year and a half ago. Um, just a really nice person. I think she has a lot to offer. She has performed at the Belly Up Tavern here in um, in San Diego County. You'll see her performing um, in various places around the county. She's a mom, lives here in Poway. She was uh, raised in the Sinanon community, which makes her background really interesting. And if you want to learn about that, you can look up our previous Jennifer Klein podcast. But she came out with a new album, so we're going to learn a little bit more about Jennifer and what she's up to. That'll be on Friday, October 16th. So every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at two, Chris Olps uh, this Monday and um, a week from Friday, the 16th will be Jennifer Klein. So um, now we'll get to my closing quote. And John Carson, this is for you. It's another Noam Chomsky quote. Um, And it's just it fits with everything I'm saying. And he says, Noam Chomsky, in the United States, there is basically one party, the business party. It has two factions called Democrats and Republicans, which are somewhat different, but carry out variations on the same policies. By and large, I am opposed to those policies, as is most of the population. So that's exactly right. You know, people like to think that the Republicans are the the big business party and the Democrats are for the little people and the little guys, but they're both in bed with corporations. They're both handing out, Republicans and Democrats are both handing out bailouts to corporations. Republicans and Democrats are both implementing regulatory code and tax law that benefits corporations. That's why President Trump paid so little in taxes over the last two decades because of that tax code that was implemented by both Republicans and Democrats. So, yeah, Noam Chomsky in the United States, there's basically one party, the business party. It has two factions called Democrats and Republicans, which are somewhat different, but carry out variations on the same policies. By and large, I am opposed to those policies, as is most of the nation. 
So we kicked this off. We talked a lot about Eddie Van Halen, but really the beginning of this podcast was from Bruce McCoy and Bruce um, has commented and he's one of our loyal listeners and viewers. And he wanted to talk about what would the United States economic system look like with one party, Republican or Democrat. And I'm telling you, if it were all Republican or if it were all Democrat, it'd be pretty much the same as what we've got now, because the hardcore lefties like AOC and Bernie and, and the squad, they're a small minority of the elected Democrats. They're a small minority of Democratic voters. I mean, Bernie didn't win the primary. You know, he, he was beaten soundly. And then on the other side, the, on the Republican side, people think that, you know, that they're the pro-corporate, they're for free, mar- unfettered capitalism. They're not, <laughs> not at all. Um, but because unfettered capitalism would force corporations to compete Corporations don't want to compete. They want to be able to rig the market to make it easy for them. So that's why the the Republicans enact regulations and tax code to benefit those corporations. That's why Medicare Part D, the prescription drugs, that's why those prices cannot be renegotiated because they've implemented that as a regulation that prevents drug prices in Medicare Part D from being renegotiated. They also set up regulations that prevent the import of less expensive medicine from foreign countries. Less expensive medicine that is made by the same manufacturers in America that just happen to be coming from a foreign nation. It's safe and it should be legal, but those are inexpensive versions of it. They don't want them coming in. So the the Republicans and the Democrats have been able to pass regulations and laws that rig the system so big pharma can get massive profits in America. So which is the pro-business party? Both of them. They're, and, and neither one of them are capitalists. Capitalists are for free markets. Capitalists are for private property. What these guys are, Republicans and Democrats, it's a mixed economy. It's capitalism, socialism, fascism, all these isms, all versions of collectivism where public property, tax dollars, are being used to to line the pockets of corporations and a rigged market, not a free market, but a rigged market is implemented through all these regulations that, you know, that apply tariffs or that prevent competition, that block imports, that create blockades, that prevent imports of less expensive medicine. Republicans and Democrats both do it. Okay, so um, this is the John Riley Project, episode 173. I'm really looking forward to talking about things that are not political, but everything is politics right now. So we'll get through it. (laughs) Um, There'll probably be some more craziness um, in the next few weeks with the elections coming forward. We've got some really good local candidates. I love talking with them so we can actually have a conversation. But once we get beyond the election, I want to start doing probably a lot more content about things that we can do to improve our life, things that we can do to pursue our happiness, things that we can do to really enjoy ourselves and flourish. And from a business perspective, I'm going to start sharing a lot more about what I do as a business consultant, as a, as a marketing professional, and talk about some, you know, strategies and, and techniques and things that I do that can be very helpful to, for people to grow businesses, to start businesses, to attract customers, and to avoid a lot of the pitfalls that will sometimes 
um, you know, trap business people and when they're starting out. So I'm going to share a lot of that um, as we get out of this political season. I'm really looking forward to that. So um, again, John Riley Project, check out my website, johnreillyproject.com. Give us a thumbs up, a like, a share, a subscription. That'd be very helpful. And we'll see you Friday at 2 p.m. live streaming as we always do. We'll see you later, friends. Bye-bye.